Come with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. This entire book was written to Jewish Christians who were going to turn back from the Lord. So this entire epistle, according to many scholars, is only second to the book of Romans for its theology. He was writing to professing Christians, and I want to remind you, just in case you're not picking up on how I always use the adjective, professing Christians. I always use that term because I profess to be a Christian. Whether I am actually a Christian, only God would know. I am, but what I'm trying to say is that I say people profess to be Christian because in the end, God has to be the final judge. So they professed Christ, and no doubt they were Christians, and now they're going to turn away from Jesus. They're going to call him and say, well, he was a false messiah after they've already professed Christ. So that's why this epistle was written. And let me say one other thing before we read the verses. Anything that's put in the Bible is there for a reason. This is not for us just to read about history. There was a time when some Jewish Christians professed Christ and turned away. Isn't that interesting historically? But this has nothing to do with me. Everything in the Bible, as we hear again from the Apostle Paul, was written for our learning, our understanding, our comfort, but also a warning, or the Bible uses the word admonition. Don't let this happen to you. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So the title of this message is taken right from the third verse, How Shall We Escape? And I exhort you, don't be thinking about who should be hearing this message. Say, you know what? Today, i got to find out what's in this message for me. I've lived long enough and pastored long enough and been in this book long enough to watch some of the most stalwart professing Christians turn away from the Lord, some of whom today are not in any church whatsoever. Many of them stated that they never turned away from Christ, and some of those were the ones who talked about others who did. They were the ones saying, hey, you know, so-and-so, they're no longer following Christ, and they're doing such-and-such. And now today, they're doing the exact same things as the people that they criticized. So I say to you, don't be thinking of somebody else today. Do what your pastor does. I always apply, always apply the Bible to myself first and foremost. And I suggest you do the same. Because the verse says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Let me just begin by saying, so great a salvation is more than a song. And I speak as a musician, as a singer. I love to sing. I sing all day long. And I actually practice my instrument every day for a little bit. So I'm not diminishing music. I'm just saying it's more than a song. We just sang Refiner's Fire. I choose to be holy. If you really think about that, it's a great choice, yes, but it's also a high calling. Refiner's Fire, burn out the sin within me. And you know what? Some of you who are going through difficult times right now maybe haven't recognized that that's exactly what God is doing. Why am I having such a rough time of it? Why is things going wrong? The Apostle Peter says, don't think it's a strange thing concerning the fiery trial that's come to test your faith. I'm paraphrasing. 
as though something strange happened to you. This is, again, the intent of that verse is that this is what happens to everyone who professes. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a follower of God. I belong to the church of God. Again, the apostle Peter says, a judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall happen to those who obey not the gospel of God? If we're here today sincerely trying to follow the Lord and to obey him, and judgment has hit our lives in various ways. The chasing that I read to you earlier of 1 Corinthians 11, what's going to become of those who've rejected Christ? Well, we know. Don't apply this message to your neighbor, your friend, your spouse, husband, wife, your children. Think of yourself, because you're not going to escape. Nor will I, if I neglect so great salvation. So we look at these verses here. And in the very first verse, we hear or we read, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. There's that adjective. Not just heed, not just a review of what we've learned. And many of you are many, many years now in the Lord. But let me ask you this question. Again, I'm giving you some things that I do regularly. I test myself before God has to. Not that he doesn't test me as well. I test myself and say, am I measuring up to what I even want to be? And where I find myself falling short, I just redouble my efforts <clears throat> to give it more time and more attention to what I profess. I'm a flawed man, that's for certain. That's for sure. But the least thing that I ever want to be, or the worst thing that I could ever be called and be found true is a hypocrite. That's just something I refuse to be. I've often told people, if I wanted to be a bad guy, I just would have given my heart and my strength over to being bad. But I decided a long time ago, as we sang it again last week, I decided to follow Jesus. So that was my choice. And my choice to this day is to continue to improve my walk with the Lord. And I really, truly hope that this is yours too, because this is the hour in which to do so. We can become so habituated with certain things, including the Bible, that we think we know what it says. And we act in a certain way, that we've acted that way for so long that we accept it. But that's not really the question today. The question is, does God accept it? You see, this has got to be the burning question in our hearts and minds all the time. God, are you pleased with my life? We sang again this song, you know, I'm ready to do your will. And as I was singing it, I'm saying, oh God, just help me to be ready, truly ready to do your will. Because I am certain that on any number of things that God may require of me, I'm not all that willing. I may be ready, I don't know, but I'm not all that willing. I'm just simply saying, you can measure yourself by yourself, but that's not the right measuring stick. You have to measure yourself to this book. And where you find yourself not measuring up, then you have to remember that the book says all things have been given unto us that apply to life and to godliness. Everything that you need to be what you ought to be is already given to you. So again, we run out of excuses. Well, you know, we compare ourselves one to another. And in 2 Corinthians, that tells us, uh, the Bible tells us, that's not wise. I may compare myself to you and say, I'm much more dedicated than most of you are. Maybe all of you. That's not wise. First of all, I don't know that. Second of all, it only shows that my measuring stick is a flawed one. I'm comparing myself to other human beings instead of to the book. And we have to compare ourselves to the book. We want to measure up. We want to make sure that we're giving earnest heed to the things that we've learned and heard in the past so that we don't fall into this condemnation here in verse 3, neglecting, and we'll get to that, neglecting, so great is salvation. Let me say this to you once again. 
If you read as much as I read, especially if you're in some of the circles I'm in, everybody that dies goes to heaven. Well, they're in a better place. It's not based on what the Bible teaches. It's just very simple. I'm not even suggesting that you go around contradicting everybody that says that. I don't. I really don't. Unless the question is put to me, and it has been. And then there is an obligation to be truthful. But even in the interest of being merciful and kind, I'll often say, well, God is righteous and he cannot make a mistake. So put your trust in God. Because in my own heart, I'm not certain that this person went to heaven. I am the way, the truth, the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And anyone who tries to amend that is already on this road to falling away from the faith. Because the faith that we have is a faith that says Jesus is not a way, he's the only way. It's not enough to just call him Lord, Lord. Not according to Jesus, it wasn't. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say to do? But that's at the crux of this message. I can say anything, but then I have to prove it one way or the other. I either got to pull out identification that says I'm what I am or what I profess I am, or my life has to demonstrate it. When you receive grace from God, it is not a static quality. It is a dynamic quality. A real change takes place in your life. The growth, admittedly, is, you know, over time, and we could say slowly, but slowly growing is still growing, and you're growing, and you're learning. And what happens is when you see that you're not measuring up in the book, your heart goes out to say, okay, Lord, help me. I've got to change. Now, for those of us who are older, we hear this, you know, you can't teach old dog new tricks, but let me tell you something in Christ. Number one, old dogs can learn many new tricks, and number two, you better learn them. Because if your past history has been one of habituation on things that are not according to the book, you better change them. Because we're going to read a verse here in a couple of minutes where God says he's shaking the earth and he's going to shake the heavens also. He's going to shake everything. And right now, there's a lot of shaking going on. A lot of shaking going on. We're going to find out in the days to come, and we're finding out now, where the roots of people are who profess Christ. I'm not talking about everybody else. They profess different things. Those who profess that they are followers of Christ are being shaken, every single one of us. Every single one of us are being shaken right now. And that's going to prove whether our roots are truly in this book and what it says, or it's in some other area of life, including our own imagination. You can take the Bible and you can make it say almost anything. That's not the way that God designed it. So we look at the word and the adjective earnest. It doesn't say just give heed, it says earnest heed. And that means much more abundantly, with much more effort. Now he's writing to professing Christians, and I think if this was Americanized, it would have said, hey, just sit back, man, you know, God loves you. Well, he does love you. My father loved me, and my mother loved me, and they disciplined me when I needed it. It wasn't pleasant, but that's how, as I became an adult, I knew that my parents loved me, because they wouldn't let me do certain things, even if in the end it wasn't always critical. That was their judgment based on the fact that they cared about me. Now, I don't know how many of you may have had parents that just let you do whatever you want, and probably not many, but that's a sign that they don't really truly care. You know, you have a lot of pain when you truly care about people and you want the best for them and they're non-compliant. We don't want to be found before God as non-compliant children. So he uses the word, we ought to give the more superabundance. And then the word heed uh, simply means to hold something always in your mind. There's a lot of writing about this, a lot of talk about this in this world of focusing. You could look at the books, they're out there. 
intense focus, front sight focus, which is a reference to guns. Doing deep work is another one. It's the idea of just taking out everything that's superficial, everything that's distracting, and do the deep work. This word here says we better have front sight focus. We better have intent focus on the Word of God. Now, I want to challenge you this morning. You don't have to raise your hands right now, but it has occurred to me, I haven't asked you in a while, how many of you have read your Bible from front to cover? No, I'm not asking you, I'm just saying. You don't have to raise your hands, but that's fine. I'm glad that you did. But how many of you started out and said, oh, you know, look it. We're not in the position anymore to make excuses. Yeah, it's going to happen. You didn't read your Bible. You didn't pray. And get back at it as soon as possible. ASAP. We're running out of time. We have to start to have such an intense focus on the things of God that we assure ourselves. See, I don't have to assure you that I'm saved. You don't have to really assure me that you're saved. The Holy Spirit has to assure you that you're saved. And when you have that, you have that assurance that comes from the inside. It's good. It's good. So here's the question. Can you say at this moment in your life that lately you say, Pastor, you know, lately I've been giving more earnest heed to the things that I've learned in the past or I grew up with. Some of you here grew up inside the church. You heard biblical preaching. Can you say honestly that in these last days, boy, I tell you, these last few months, last couple of years, I've been giving a real intent focus to what this book says. Because I tell you how you can tell those who are not. They're not here. Oh, you say, that's where we have you, Pastor, because they're in another church. And let me tell you something from my trade. Like Peter, illustration I've brought to you many times. Here he is with Jesus, right up to the time Jesus says, before the cock crow, you will deny me three times. And he swears that he'd die for Jesus. But then within a short space of time, here's Jesus and here's Peter. Now we go to Peter and we say, you're not following Jesus. Says, First of all, who are you to judge me? Because I am following Jesus. But then I bring it to his attention, or you bring to his attention, but Peter, you're not walking the way you used to walk. You're not here anymore. You're not lockstep with Jesus anymore. You're back here. And then eventually we know the story. Peter three times said, I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. And he starts to curse and swear, and he hears the cock crow, and he weeps. Because now he realized, but he couldn't realize himself, that Jesus told him, you're not where you want to be. You don't have that dedication anymore. You don't want to be in that position, not in the times in which we live now. I've done three funerals this year so far, which ordinarily, you know, it's not that much, but they're all from this COVID thing. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking, what was in their minds? Where was their life at? Because now it's done. It's all done. And I could register my own opinion because, you know, one sat in my church, another one I knew for many, many years, and I could register an opinion, but that's all it is. It's just an opinion. You see, you have to know inside of you and it is well with my soul. And you have to be able to say, boy, I've been really doubling up on my study of the Bible. But what you're facing is the same thing we're all facing, distractions. And I'm going to give you some advice on what I do with distractions. As much as I can, when they are something I can disregard, I disregard them. They may be important, but it was taking me away from Christ, taking me away from Christ, taking me away from my vocation. I ignore it. Doesn't mean I don't pray. Doesn't mean I don't care. Just means that I know it's not under my purview, that God has not given this to me. And so I have to let whoever it's given to, to take it up. And I suggest that you do the same thing. That you start to look for these distractions, taking away that earnest heed to the things that this book says. And when you read it, just let it say what it says. So that you don't find yourself in a position that you have neglected so great a salvation. In this very first chapter, if your Bible's still open, look at the first and second verses. 
It says, God who at sundry times in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. There is an emphasis here when we connect it to verse 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 2. The prophets were, of course, they were speaking for God. You know, it's still God speaking. But now it's augmented to the point where we say now it's the Son of God. God come in the flesh is now speaking to us. So when we take that there, we see, again, the augmentation of this important doctrine. Give heed to what you've read and heard. But not everybody will. Charles Stanley, some years ago, oh, 20, 30 years ago, wrote a book on confronting casual Christianity. Now, I didn't read the whole book. I read parts of it, but it's a good title. Confronting Casual Christianity. Singing of the hymns and the prayers that we give and even the reading of the Bible, this daily devotion we talk about. That still may be in the realm of being casual about your relationship with Christ rather than obedience being the real indication that you're serious about your relationship with Christ. Come with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 25 says, See that ye refuse not him that speaks, speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, that's referring to Moses, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. You see, the emphasis is being laid here is that, okay, we heard the prophets, let's say Moses, and people turned away from him and it wasn't good when they did. But how much more now? This is the son of God. He, Jesus always talks about this uh, greater than Solomon is here. So the emphasis continues of whom we've heard these things. God come in the flesh. Look, at, can you remember the day you gave your life to Christ? How many years ago was that? 5, 10, 15, 20? For me, it's getting close to 45 years ago. Is it possible to maintain the fire? Not only possible, it's ordered in the scripture. What we read through Revelation, what does he say? Well, I have somewhat against you. It's Jesus speaking to his own people. Let's remember, we're not outside the walls of the church. We're speaking to the people who say, I'm a follower of Christ. And he says, well, I got something against you. You left your first love. You've tolerated these false teachers that have come into your midst and given them a pass and immorality and other things. And then he always says this in the book of the Revelation, repent or else. And what does somebody say? Well, I've been around a long time. I'm getting too old to change. And God says, you better change. You better change. Whether you are 90 years old, or you're nine years old, change, change. You see, the excuses that we make may be acceptable when you're talking to church leaders, even your pastor. But God says, mm -mm, mm -mm, no, you change. You change. And by the way, let me just mention this too, which I like to mention frequently. Anything God tells us to do is never good for him. I'm amazed. I really am. And obviously, if you've seen my daily show, The Oasis, it's designed for people who suffer from anxiety and depression. So obviously, I have much sympathy and empathy. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing the show. But I'm amazed at people who are, the words not satisfied. It's not even content. They just say, oh, this is what it is. Complacent. Maybe that's a good word. If you're depressed, you want to be out of depression. If you're anxious, you want to overcome your fears. That's what this book is all about. It's not about bragging about how you've been a nervous person all your life. It's about saying, I used to be a nervous person. Now I'm solid in the faith and Christ is my stability. That's a testimony. And that's what you want. You don't want to neglect so great a salvation, which amongst many other things has promised to deliver us from our fears. In verse 26 of the same chapter, Hebrews 12, Jesus is the one speaking from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. That was during Moses' time, but God was the one speaking. 
But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but the heavens. And that is what we're seeing coming in installments, but it's coming every, every day. The whole thing's being shaken. Hollywood's being shaken. The media's being shaken. The church is being shaken. Everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken and uprooted that's not planted by God himself. So we must give the more abundant um, setting the mind on, the intent focus, that word heed, we must give an intent focus to the things that we've heard because the possibility is that we can let them slip. How do I know that? Because that's what the book says. It doesn't say, for me to tell you, you can possibly let them slip, but I'm not that way. It says you, Pastor Ray, give heed to what you've learned and don't let them slip. We go even further when God tells us there can be no human being on the face of the earth that you must allow to take you away from your faith in Christ or to amend it and change it and to alter it and pervert it. That's what the book says. And I like to say this all the time just to remind you. You see this Bible here, the one you got in your hand? I didn't write it. Not one single word in here did I write. Not one. But I have committed myself to it, I have examined it, and I have never found any reason to turn away from it. That's what the book says. Somebody just yesterday asked me, once again, what did I think of Joel Osteen? I try to be as kind as I can in talking about other people and preachers. And I said, well, basically he's a motivational speaker that puts Bible verses in. And what I'm finding is that there are people who make no pretense of being associated with the Bible finding what many professing Christians don't seem to be able to find. And I'm being as charitable as I can, that I believe Joel Osteen is a motivational speaker who uses scripture verses. I'm not even going to say there's something wrong with that, but you can't call him a preacher. I won't call him a preacher. A preacher is one who is honest enough to say, that's what the book says. And the people say, I don't like it. So I say, I didn't write it. I wasn't the one that said, give them more earnest heat. I wasn't the one that said, how shall we escape? I didn't write these things. This here, by the way, the book of Hebrews is traditionally attributed to the Apostle Paul. I didn't write this. I just find myself finding more convincing proofs as I get older and older and older that this book indeed is true. Amen. Every word of it. And so you should give the more earnest heed. And by the way, I want to just say this and be on the record of saying this. I'm not against motivational speeches. I, from time to time at least, not a lot, but I listen to motivational speeches. I think that they're good. I really do. But I just don't count them as Bible. You know, if you had a good coach, if you played sports, you had a good coach that was rah-rah and could get in your face, so to speak, and motivate you, well, okay. But it's still not Bible. Bible is Bible. So just to be clear, I'm not against motivational speeches. Many people need them. But when you're professing to be Christian, you signed on for a life of development. As the book says again, the professing Christian's got to get off the breast milk. And if you could take that as an image, as a picture, it's unnatural that someone who's been 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years don't know the basic precepts, signs of maturity in the Lord. Remember when, and it's in this book here in Hebrews, remember when he says to these professing Christians, you know, the time has come, you should be teachers. And now we've got to go over all the fundamentals all over again. It's in this book, read it, chapter 6. We're not going to go over these fundamentals again about the resurrection of the dead and being baptized. So what happens with people? They weren't given heed to what they were hearing, so they couldn't be given more. So they had to keep going over, and the Apostle Paul, was, if, if indeed he wrote this book, he was saying, you know, well, we're not going to do this anymore. You need to be baptized. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. So we've got to go on to deeper things, more mature things. 
That's the object. And again, if you're being tested, and I know many of you are, this is the purpose of it. Remember John 15, pruning back the bush? Every time you prune a bush back, it just grows even more. That's the purpose of it. God is pruning you to get you to be deeper, more fruitful. Now, in verse 2, it says, If the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and let me just clarify this. The scene at Mount Sinai is, is Moses is meeting with God, but there's a host of angels which ordinarily accompany God. So sometimes you'll see a reference to, you know, God gave the law to Moses, which he did, but that angels were somehow involved in this process. So that's what that means in verse 2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received the just recompense of reward, how shall we escape? Let's just stay on the second verse. You see, if in this life we're comfortable, we don't want anyone to ruffle our feathers. We don't want to talk about this. Well, many preachers don't want to talk about this. But you remember this verse, and this is from the book, from the Bible. If any of you are without chastening, and the word bastard is not what we would call a curse word. You know what it means. It's in this book. The book says, if you are without chastening, you're a bastard. In the literal sense of the word, you're illegitimate. You're not one of God's kids. Now, how many preachers don't want to tell Americans that? It affects the tithing. It doesn't go up. It goes down. It affects the attendance. Who wants to be part of a church like that? How dare he tell me that? I did not write the book. If you hold that, I say you, if people hold anything against me, it's that I recite the book as accurately as I can. So what your real problem is, your real problem is with the book. You don't like what the book says. That's true. But if I was clever, I would just disregard certain chapters, certain things. I would come in here today and say, oh, I know you've had it rough this week. And then I give you this line, which is tantamount to anabolic steroids. I give you an injection, your muscles grow. I said, look at me. Now, anybody who's not on steroids says, it's all show muscle. Get off the steroids. I had a guy ask me told me he could do this and that if we competed. He was 20 years younger than me. I told him, he didn't know that I knew. I said, get off the steroids and come see me. <laughs> and we'll go at it. I didn't mean fight, I meant lift. Never heard from him again. It was appalled that I could figure out that the guy was on steroids. Right. Mm. So the church on steroids, you give him a shot and all of a sudden, look at us, we're an imposing figure. And God says, not really, it's show muscle. Real muscle takes years and years and years to build, and you have to train yourself, and you got to be there, and you got to do the hard work, and you got to have an injury or two, and you got to, once in a while, forgive me for being so vulgar, once in a while you vomit, you've worked out so hard. This is what it takes, and that's the life of a real Christian. It is not an easy road. It's not all moonlight and roses. It's not all that easy. Pick up your cross and follow me. And, you know, in my early years, I said, yeah, 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 until I found out how deep that cross can penetrate. And then you have second thoughts. But if you're wise, you say, well, where can I go? Jesus has the words of eternal life. Come with me to Numbers chapter 14. And we're going to read about when Israel, excuse me, yeah, when Israel went into the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, a couple few hundred years later, after 400 years of slavery, and they go and they scout out the land. Verse 28, Numbers chapter 14, they come back and they give an evil report. They say, well, yeah, it's a good land. We'll grant you that. It was God that said it, but we grant you that it's a good land. But there's giants and there's walled cities. There's a lot of obstacles. We're not going. We're not going to take our children there and put them at risk. 
And once again, let me remind you, I don't know that they really had that in their mind that what they were rejecting was God. So they looked at Moses. We're not taking our kids in. Final word. Joshua and Caleb say, hey, man, they're bread for us. That's what he said. They're bread for us. Faith in God, two. No faith in God, ten. Now God says this, and it's kind of interesting. In verse 28, Numbers 14, say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, ye have spoken in mine ears. Now this here, is, if you look at it, what God is saying is, you know what? I heard your speech. I heard you talk. Now I'm going to talk to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. And all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. It was 12 spies. But your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, them will I bring in. And they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Let me just stop there. I'm going to read a little bit more. Don't you wish God never said that? Come on. This is America. We don't talk like that to Americans. We don't say, you know what? I don't think you're going to make it. I had a man sat in my office years ago. Again, a lot of talk. And then a lot of admission of wrongdoing, habitually doing it wrong. And I shared this with him. This is our topic for today. I said, in my mind, there's lines of demarcation. I said, you're going closer and closer to the line. But once you step over, there's no coming back. Now, within the, let's say the circle's like this. And we flop and we fall, we make mistakes, and then we judge ourselves as we read. And God says, okay, you understand? Okay, this is wrong, so stop. And that's what we do. But as we keep saying, well, you know, hey, I'm only human. Uh, well, I don't think this, what's the big deal about this and that? And you keep going closer to that line. Let's be clear about something. A line of demarcation. You cross over. There's no coming back. How do I know that? Well, I read about Esau. I read about Esau that when he realized what he did, selling his birthright, he cried and he wept. And he said, I want it back, God. I want it back. And God says, too late. And this explains why when Jesus talks about hell, he says, there shall be weeping. And gnashing of teeth. Now, the gnashing of teeth, all these people would be angry at God forever. And by the way, I'm throwing this in because I want you to know this. I don't know that I said this to you. I said it to somebody. I don't know if I said it to you, but I want you to know this. You know, I never listened ever to George Carlin. Never. But I heard that he was comic and funny and all that stuff. But I just never listened to him. I don't know. I just never did. Never did. Until a few weeks ago. And I said, okay, what was this guy really all about? Well, first of all, I didn't know that he was an atheist. And I didn't know that he could speak so blasphemous against God while thousands of people clapped and applauded. I mean, I can't suggest that you look it up on YouTube if you want to do it. Well, okay. I listened to it. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. He openly blasphemed God and the crowd roared with laughter. And George is now dead. And I just wonder, because I'm not, again, I can't be the final judge. I don't know. God grew up in the Bronx, not that far from where I lived. I don't know, but I wonder if he's laughing now. I don't know. I'm not going to make a judgment because you, know, you always have that thief on the cross. You always have that last minute of remorse and regret, and God is very, very gracious and merciful. I'm just simply saying, I have never experienced anybody blaspheme God like that in public while people were paying for it and laughing. But maybe they didn't know about his constant habitual alcoholism, his cocaine habit, the way he treated his daughter, and she testifies about how difficult it was living in that home with mother and father on drugs and stuff. And the world is fooled by this, but I don't think that you should be fooled by this. If you thought he was funny in the past, look up on his history. 
Because I knew nothing about the guy. I really didn't. I never listened to him. I don't know why. And I can't even think of a reason why I didn't. But I didn't. And I had no idea of what he actually believed until I saw what I saw a few weeks back. Don't be in that position. As for your carcasses, they shall fall in the wilderness. This is what motivated people, I assume, like George Carlin. They don't want to hear God talk like this. And so they rant on God. Verse 33, and your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years and bear your whoredoms. Let me just say this very quickly. I always, of course, try to be polite with women and so forth. But we don't use that word whore much anymore. We talk about indiscretion and so forth. But there's something powerful about words when they're taken in the way they were designed to be taken. That you don't want your daughter to grow up to be a whore. You don't want your wife to be a whore. So when we see whoredoms, God's using the word to say, you know how I feel towards you? I feel the way you men, and I'm picking on women here. Of course, men are sometimes four times as bad. But he says, I feel towards you the way you feel towards sisters and daughters and women who've been with other men that are whores. And I'm going to judge you for your whoredoms and your carcasses shall be wasted in the wilderness. And the number of the days in which you search the land, even 40 days each day for a year, you shall bear your iniquities, even 40 years, and you shall know my breach of promise. Now God is saying to us, all right, look, it, I'm taking you to heaven. We sang about it again, and we sing about it almost every week, freely, as a promise. On our part, there's faith required and cooperation with God's grace. Right? I'm not saying that we do it. I'm saying God's grace, but we cooperate. And God says, okay, now time for a little pruning and whatever. And we cooperate or we don't cooperate. But this grace is this dynamic quality. And we don't want to breach the covenant that we have with Christ. Or I should say we have with the Father through Christ. Verse 35. I, the Lord, have said I will surely do it unto this evil congregation. There's another word that should be taken out of the Bible. Evil. One famous preacher. I'll leave him off for now. He went on the record some 20 years or so ago. He was asked the question, what is evil? And he says, well, really, who can define evil? This is the guy that was called America's pastor. Can't define evil? And you're a master in the Bible? Well, my little grandchildren can define it. So this is what we're dealing with in this time, that we have to give more attention and more time to what the Bible is actually saying all the way through so that we're balanced. I, the Lord, have said I will surely do it unto this evil congregation that are gathered together against me in the wilderness. They shall be consumed and there they shall die. And the man which Moses sent to search the land who returned and made all the congregation to, the men rather, to murmur against him by bringing up a slander upon the land, even those men did bring up the evil report upon the land, died by the plague. So first of all, 10 of them died fairly instantly because they brought up a report that was the opposite of what God had said. Brought up an evil report. So the question then is, how shall we escape? So how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Isaiah 20, verse 6, And the inhabitant of this isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation, whither we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? Let me say something here as commentary. If Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, and some others that are held as brilliant men of our age can figure out this planet cannot sustain the type of troubles that it's having. And Hawking was one who's on the record of saying several different scenarios. We've been through it. And Elon Musk, following in suit, says, okay. Hawking said, we're probably going to have to go to Mars. So he's on this project to uh, get us there. I say, us. I'm sure I'm not on the short list or the long list. And you know this, that's my main question. 
am I going? And my children, my grandchildren, and my mom, and, well, uh, well, okay, pastor. Okay, so this is, and I point this out, whether he makes it there or not, who knows. This is man's solution. We're going to escape this. And the Bible is emphatic. and says, no, you shall not escape. You shall not escape. In Ezekiel 17, 15, but he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors to Egypt. This is the story of the king of Judah eventually making some kind of deal with Nebuchadnezzar who was coming in, who God said, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in, he's going to conquer this city, and he's going to destroy my temple because I'm giving him permission. I'm sending him to destroy the temple. It's useless. It's not doing what it was designed to do. Anyway, he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt, king of Judah, that they might give him horses and much people. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that doeth such things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? seeing he despises the oath by breaking the covenant, when, lo, he had given his hand and done all these things, he shall not escape. That's Jehoiakim. Matthew 23, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Read the 23rd chapter of Matthew, where Jesus takes on the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now that's a message that I doubt we're ever going to see on the Christian television. Because let's face it, it's offensive. But let me say this again. Man did not write the Bible. Men wrote the Bible, yes. But man did not write the Bible. God wrote it. And men, men and women, they're offended by this. You know what? The record still stands. It still says it. Whether people believe it or not, they say, I'm never reading the Bible again. And they toss it. The record still stands. I've read books that at the end of it, I didn't care for them. I did toss them. But the book still stands somewhere. Someone's reading it. The Bible still stands. And what God has said shall come to pass. Here's one for you. Romans 2 and verse 3. And thinkest thou of this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doeth the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? It's wrong to commit adultery. And that's what the Apostle Paul goes through. He says, but do you commit adultery? See, I said at the beginning, apply this to yourself. Don't apply it to everybody else you know. Um, you that say a man should not steal. Do you steal? And we know that they did. And then we take it from there. And then we apply it to ourselves. These things are wrong. And you have had this, and I have had it. And someone point out and say, well, what good you're doing. And the worst thing for me, the humiliation, is that it often comes from someone I don't respect. It's one thing to come adjust criticism, coming from someone I do respect. But God will use Balaam's donkey and say, why are you hitting me? Why are you beating me? You're the one that's in rebellion against God. And we have to be careful that we're not in a position of being the judge of the world, when all the world's got to say, wait a second, you're doing the exact same things you're telling me I shouldn't be doing. I've told you many, many times, I'd never be a Christian if somebody come along pontificating about all that I shouldn't be doing wrong when they're doing the same thing. Oh, that's different, they say. Why is it different? Or we're under the blood. No, no, it don't work that way. When you're under the blood and you're washed and you're cleansed, well, it's self-explanatory. You're washed and you're cleansed. We've, again, we've slipped and we fall. We all know that. But we don't justify ourselves. Let's say vulgarity. I can use vulgarity because, A, I'm a Christian covered by the blood, and I'm a pastor. But you can't. Well, that don't work. No one's going to accept that. But you see, the world doesn't accept it either. When they watch us, especially the early shows in Christianity here in the last couple of decades, they laughed at us. But I have to admit that there was much cause for laughter because they pointed out this very thing. The people who were telling others they shouldn't be doing this and that were doing the same things. And in the course of time, that came out into the light. 
First Thessalonians 5.3, pertaining to, pertaining to the last days when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them and travail upon a woman, or as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not es escape. And so we are exhorted. Come back here in the book of uh, Hebrews, go to chapter 10. While you go into chapter 10, I'm going to read from chapter 4, same book of Hebrews 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief that I read to you from Numbers 14. Hebrews 10, 28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sorer, which means worse, how much worse punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace. So we have this again. Don't refuse him that's speaking from heaven. Because the one that spoke from earth, that was Moses, had great, there was great repercussions for disobeying God through Moses, but much, much worse for disobeying God through Jesus Christ. Here's the verse I mentioned earlier. 1 Peter 4, 17, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? We, don't, we, we think about the second part of the verse, often as Christians, but not the first. Not everything that goes wrong in our life is disobedience, but some things are. God is saying, no, I'm not, I'm not blessing this endeavor because your heart is not right. Your life is not right. So we get to this. The question is, how shall we escape if we neglect? Think of the word neglect. Children are neglected. They're not paid attention to their needs, uh, nourishment, uh, sleep. I remember many stories. Children are up three, four o'clock in the morning while the parent is out drinking, drugging, whatever they're doing. They're neglecting the children. I hate to say this, but I actually see it in social media. It's heartbreaking. Who's watching over these young people? You know, when I grew up and most of you grew up, even the goofy, stupid things that we did, it wasn't blasted all over the media. Now it is. And it's, it's just not good. I want to give you some encouragement now about the fear of the Lord. If you like, you could turn with me and look at the verses, but I'm going to go through them quickly in the interest of time. Say this to yourself to make the message really hit home. Where it says, how shall we escape, put the word I. How shall I escape? All of our human nature says, hey, today I'm preaching to you guys. That's Pastor Ray talking. I'm preaching to you. Me, I'm okay. But I'm telling you that that's not the case. That's not how I read the Bible. It's truly not. I'm always thinking about my relationship with the Lord. Am I right with the Lord? And whatever you get is just gleaned from how I'm examining myself every day, throughout the day. In Psalm 111, verse 10, as you're turning there, let me just say this. So we're, we're going to these universities that had great reputations, you know, for turning out these great scholars, and some still do turn out great scholars, but I think some of it's just by serendipity because they happen to be intelligent people to begin with. Many of these universities are now being taken to task by former graduates like Harvard and Yale, whatever, saying, you're not really producing great minds anymore. Why? The standards keep going lower and lower and lower, and it gets a little goofy. So we read Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments, his praise endureth forever. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Our early the settlers and founders of this country were raised on the Bible, raised on many things pertaining to the Bible. And if you want to know where they deepen intellect, you could read some of their works. You could read, for instance, the Federalist Papers and see if after even the precursory reading, you could even remotely understand what they're talking about. 
because I've done it, and come back and scratch my head. And I'm a reader. I'm saying, wow. And you read older books, which I mostly read older books. So you're talking about a run-on sentence. These sentences have semicolon after semicolon after semicolon. And you got to stop and you got to really think and say, okay, whoa, 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 I'm losing track here. Because their intellect, this is my belief, their intellect was deep because they were deep in the book and they were deep in the things of God. Not all of them, of course, but they were deep here. And that's what this book is saying. If you're deep here, first and foremost, and always, you're going to be deep in other places as well. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Now that's wisdom. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is... Well, somebody said, what's the fear of the Lord? Well, this is what it is. Hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way, and forward means perverse, and the perverse mouth do I hate. Well, now we know what God hates. Proverbs 8, 13. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. And then verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Proverbs 19:23. the fear of the Lord tends to life, and he that has it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. I want you to notice Every single one of these scriptures, there's several others too, but these are the main ones that use the phrase, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, every single one of them has something positive attached to it. So as some think of the fear of the Lord, as some perhaps when they're preaching the book will do this and say, well, I can't say that to these people. (laughs) Because they'll leave and they won't tithe and they won't come back and they won't love me. You have to understand a lot of preachers want to be loved. Now, I want to be loved and liked, but I don't want it above the truth. I don't want it above the truth. Now, don't get me wrong. I want you to love me and like me, which you're commanded to do anyway, so it's a bonus for me. (laughs) But if I love me rather than you, then I put this book away, and every single week it's some type of pep rally. And you walk away slapping me on the back, and you're saying, that's my pastor. And maybe I make a lot of money. But then you open the book, thus saith the Lord. And the whole climate changes. But what I want to point out to you is the paradox. At the fear of the Lord, everything attached to it is good. So I finish with this. If you want to read something, especially if you're young, I should say, and avoid making all the mistakes that older people have made, then read Solomon and Ecclesiastes. He's had women. He's had a thousand wives. He's had more money than most people who've ever, ever lived. He's got wisdom. He's got horses and chariots and servants. The queen of Ethiopia comes to visit him. She says, the half of your wisdom hasn't been told. Wow. What a guy. Until we find him offering children to Moloch. His wives lead him astray from his God. And he finds himself pretty much a broken, depressed man. Because when he started out, he said, Lord, I don't want anything but wisdom to run your kingdom. He says, you know what? God says, because you've asked that, didn't ask for the life of your enemies and didn't ask for all these things. I'll give you all that too. Because he asked for wisdom. But then he departed from that. His life was a real, real shamble, or shambles. But then he says this in the 12th chapter, at the 13th verse. So he says, after writing 11 and a half chapters about my life, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What was the point I was trying to get across, telling you how my life has been? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Then 14 says, for God shall bring every secret work into judgment whether it be good, whether it will be evil. We could learn a lot from Solomon 
He started out well, finished exceptionally poor. You that started out well, you want to finish well. If someone around you is circling the drain in their faith, don't let them take you with them. Because if you stand strong, there's a possibility you may be able to rescue them. But if their faith is going like this down the drain, you back off. The blind cannot lead the blind, Jesus teaches us. Otherwise, they both fall into the ditch. And that is the conclusion of the whole matter. How shall I escape if I neglect so great a salvation? I want to pray with you today that you don't let the things in this book escape you. Now, again, I want to give you an exhortation. If for some reason this year, oh, so I just got so messed up with my Bible reading. Okay, fine. Start today. Not January 1st. You start today. You go home and you read, and you start this afternoon, and you read and read and read for the rest of your life, front cover to back cover. It's the easiest way that I know of. And you pray, and you go before the Lord, and you say, God, you know, I'm reading this book, and it's telling me that my ways are not pleasing. And you change them, and God is merciful. God is gracious. So you say, oh, I wish so-and-so was here today to hear this message. They weren't. You were, and I was. I'll go home today or tomorrow, read my Bible again, and it'll challenge me again. Father, we just come before you this day in Jesus' mighty name. As mentioned, the book is the book. None of us here wrote it. You wrote it. And you closed the canon 2,000 years ago, approximately. And it is what it is, and it says what it says. Now, help us, God, to be able to examine ourselves and abide in the fear of the Lord, all of which has something very positive attached to it. But let us not be found, Father God, in a place where we have become negligent of the book. We go to another church where it's nice and cozy, and we could do a few good works and help the pastor out. But in the heart of hearts, there is a knowledge that you're not right with Christ. Help us not to try to cover ourselves with the pretense of humility and piety when it's really just pride and arrogance. Help us, God, to be above all things loving, humble, Charitable and merciful. Father, we just ask you today in Jesus' name that we look at this verse and we don't say, how would they escape? Oh, those poor Hebrew Christians. We look at ourselves and say, how shall I escape? If I begin to neglect my first love, God, help us today. We read in your word that prior to the Antichrist and the destruction of this present evil world, there would be a falling away from the faith of Christ. It's happening, been happening now for decades. It's happening almost every day from what I observe and what I read and what I see. My own eyes, people I know. Help us, God, not to be in that group. Like that old song, when the saints come marching in, we want to be in that number. Amen. Teach us, God, to live in the fear of the Lord and study to be quiet, study to be good students of the Bible, get away from what is evil. Help us, God. Pour out your spirit. Cause us by your spirit be washed again, cleansed again. And when we ever we sing that song again somewhere down the road, refiner's fire, help us to remember that that's a verse in the Bible that says that prior to your coming, you would refine people. You're going to refine Israel. You're going to continue to refine your church. It's a burning fire. But in the end of it, like Job said, we will come out as gold. And we're confident in your grace and your mercy because you're holding our hands that we will come out as gold. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Help us, God, to find ourselves to be compliant children, not stubborn, rebellious children. Help us, God, to be found faithful to the end. And we give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor today in Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen with me today? Amen.